I want to invite you to open your Bibles with me to the book of 1 Corinthians. Chapter 15, I want, to, I want to read a text to you from the Apostle Paul that is probably one of the most significant texts in all of the New Testament. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, I'm going to read a fairly lengthy portion of scripture, but this is where we're going to camp out, so, so I want you to, to lean in with your heart and, and just tune into the word of the Lord here for a few moments. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 12 through 20, beginning in verse 12, it says, but if it is preached that Christ has been raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no rec- resurrection of the dead? If there's no resurrection of the dead then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless and so is your faith. More than that, we are then found to be false witnesses about God. For we have testified about God that he raised Christ from the dead. But he did not raise him if in fact the dead are not raised. Verse 16. For if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised either. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You're still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are all of all people most to be pitied. Look at verse 20. But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead. Can somebody say amen? Amen. He has been raised from the dead. I want to speak to you today about the impact of the resurrection. You know, there's a movie that's out this weekend. I don't know if you heard. I don't know if you heard about this movie, but yesterday morning I saw on the news that Avengers Endgame has already broken all the global box office numbers long before the weekend was over. I don't know if any of you have been tracking with this on on social media, but this is the title for my message today. Now listen, if you're a fan and you're like, oh, I want to see the movie, you probably already are aware that not only is this movie exploding in the box office, but trending all over social media is the hashtag, don't spoil endgame. Because the movie opened in other nations before it opened here, and nobody wants the movie to be spoiled. So let me just say, I'm not going to be that guy. All right? So if you haven't seen the movie and you want to see the movie, let me tell you, I'm not going to spoil it for you. I haven't seen the movie. I haven't read a blog about the movie. I don't know anything about the movie. So let me give you that disclaimer up front in case you thought you were going to get a bunch of Marvel comic analogies for the next 30 minutes. I'd like to see the movie, but I'm about 15 Marvel movies behind, so (laughs) I need like a week of binge watching to catch up to the storyline so I can go see the movie that everybody's talking about. But I I wanted to take this title because we're one week outside of Easter, and how many of you know that Easter was a pretty big deal? I'm not just talking about last weekend for our church. I'm talking about the moment. I'm talking about Jesus coming up out of the grave. And I want you to know today that there is an end game to the Easter story. 
There is a purpose and a plan in the resurrection. There's something that was intended to happen through the Easter story. And a lot of people, they go through this as another holiday. And maybe there's a little bit of nostalgia, and maybe they even listen to the story of Jesus, death, burial, and resurrection. But on the other side of Easter, we kind of come away with the question, so what? What's different? Why? What's the end game of Easter? And we're not the first ones to ask that question. Paul mused about that question in the text that we just read. And he begins to unpack for us what would be the result if Jesus had not risen from the dead. And so for every child of God, you need to know what a difference it makes that Jesus rose from the dead. And for everyone here that maybe you're not a person of faith and and you're not really sure what the significance of all this is, you really need to lean in today and pay attention because Paul begins to explain to us in 1 Corinthians 15 what would be the implications of a Jesus who was born of a virgin, who lived a sinless life, who taught incredible stories, who performed miracles, who died a sacrificial life but stayed dead. And I want to declare to you today that if that would be our story, that is not enough. There was something more that God had in store. There was an end game to Easter. And so Paul lists these things, and thank God he gets to the end of it, and he says, but, and we just read it, verse 20, but Christ has indeed been raised from the dead. And there's some things that we get from that. And so what Paul does is he he speaks about all these things, these attributes uh, from the negative side. In other words, he, he shows the negative consequences of what would be our reality if the resurrection never happened. Rather than preaching from the negative side, what I want to do is I want to turn those negative potential consequences into positive realities because we know that Jesus is alive. And when we do that, I believe you're going to see that, wow, the resurrection has given us some incredible, incredible promises. If you're a note taker, I'm going to try to get through five of these. And the first one is found in verse 17, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 17. Paul says again, reading, and if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You're still in your sins. So instead of saying negatively that we are not still in our sins because Christ is risen, we can say positively that because of the resurrection of Jesus, we are forgiven. Number one, we are forgiven. That's a reality that we know because of the resurrection. Listen, if you ever needed a reason to get excited about Easter, I hope it moves up your list on favorite holidays because Easter communicates to us that we are forgiven forgiven. And I had to put that one first because every other thing that God would desire for you and every other thing that you could receive from God in your life hinges and is predicated on this reality, his forgiveness. If he hasn't forgiven you, there's no other benefits that can be yours. I I don't know if you knew this, but the Bible is clear that sin separates us from God. It separates us. So before God's blessing can reach us, the barrier has to be removed. The Bible says in Psalms chapter 66, verse 18, about the the impact of this barrier of sin in our lives. It says, if I had cherished sin in my heart, the Lord would not have listened. 
Now, I know it sounds good to just tell everybody that God is listening to your prayers because we'd all like to believe that, but the psalmist didn't believe that. The psalmist understood that if I held on to sin, God's not hearing me. Why? Because sin is a barrier between us and God. That's why God would pay such a high price in sending his only begotten son to die on the cross. Look, if sin had no consequences, why would Jesus have died? But God knows, and we ought to know, that sin has to be dealt with. It has to be forgiven, and that's exactly what happened in the Easter story. Our sins were dealt with. Everything hinges on this. We are forgiven. And for those of us that have been in church, you know, right away we start thinking, wait a minute, I thought it was the cross. I mean, we're we're forgiven because Jesus died for our sins. It's the cross, right? It's not the resurrection. And to that, I would say, yes, Jesus died to pay the penalty for our sins. But you have to think this through a little bit and ask the question, if Jesus had stayed dead, how would we know that God accepted Jesus' offering for our sins? How would we know that he was the acceptable sacrifice? See, the reality is that the cross of Jesus Christ speaks a word that says you are worth it. But the resurrection of Jesus Christ speaks a word that says you are worthy. The empty tomb validates the atonement of Jesus for your sin and for my sin. The empty tomb is God's way of saying I accept his sacrifice. The slate is clean. Your sins are forgiven. So you can't miss the significance of the connection between the resurrection and the crucifixion of Jesus. Paul said it like this in another place. In Romans chapter 4, verse 25, he said, he was delivered over to death for our sins and was raised to life for our justification. Justification is an awesome Bible word, but to to just break it down simply, it just means that when you're justified, that, that God sees you as if you've never sinned. God sees you as if you are innocent, as if you are guiltless. And and it was the resurrection from the dead that justifies us. See, every every person in this room, every, every human being that's ever lived has the same deep need for acceptance. We, we want to know that somebody loves us. We want to know that, that somebody approves of us. We want to know that somebody accepts us for who we are. We need to know that we're good enough, that we're worthy of love, that we're worthy of commitment. That's what the resurrection speaks to us today. While the cross says you're worth dying for, the empty tomb says you're worthy. Yeah, I got to thinking about a couple of the disciples again this week, and you know, maybe this is the only difference between Peter and Judas, because both of them followed Jesus for the same amount of time, Both of them were committed to his ministry equally. Both of them, Jesus said, you're going to deny me. You're going to turn your back on me. He told Judas, you're going to betray me. He told Peter three times, you're going to deny me. You're going to curse my name. Before I go to the cross, you're going to fall away. In fact, he said to all 12 disciples, you're all going to fall away on account of me. And yet Judas overwhelmed with guilt and remorse, went out and hung himself. The only difference between him and and Peter, who was restored and 
ended up becoming a pillar and a founder of the church and the, the great apostle. The difference is Peter met the risen Savior. Judas never did. See, it's the resurrection that communicates to us, you're worthy. I know you're imperfect, but you're worthy. Not because of who you are, but because of what Christ has done for you. And God rose him from the grave to say, I accept his sacrifice for your sins. I've told this story before, but I just love it. There was a a father in Spain who had become estranged from his son. And the father and son had had a falling out and the son ran away and the father, he looked for him and he couldn't find his son for days and then weeks and and he was becoming hopeless. And so finally, as a last ditch effort to to try and, and find his son, the father took out an ad in the Madrid newspaper He paid for the advertisement, and the ad read, Dear Paco, meet me in front of this newspaper office at noon on Saturday. All is forgiven. I love you, your father. On noon that Saturday, there were 800 men named Paco who were standing and waiting to receive their father's love and forgiveness. It's something that every one of us long for. Every one of us have this need and this desire to know that we're forgiven. Even when we don't think about it, we long for it. There's something in us that that just wants to know we're accepted by our Father. And Paul says, because Christ rose from the dead, we are no longer in our sins. We are forgiven. We're forgiven. That's the end game of Easter, that you could know I'm forgiven. The second one is this, you can trust Jesus. Paul writes in verse 14, he said, and if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. So we can take that negative statement that says our faith is not useless and the preaching is not in vain, and we can put it in a more personal and a powerful way that says because of the resurrection, our faith has substance, or even more personally, because of the resurrection of Jesus, there is someone who can be completely trusted. Because of the resurrection, we can trust Jesus. You understand, if Jesus stays in the grave, everything he said is questionable. I mean, I just read to you earlier when we received communion, Jesus told them plainly, the son of man is going to be betrayed. He's going to be handed over. He's going to be crucified. He's going to die. Three days later, he's going to rise again. If that doesn't happen, everything is up in the air. It's no wonder that that on the Saturday between his crucifixion and on his resurrection, they stayed locked up in an upper room, afraid, unsure, uncertain. I mean, we have the the advantage of hindsight. We, We know how the story ends, but for them, they understood one thing in that moment, that if Jesus is dead, nothing makes sense. Nothing makes sense. But if it actually happens, I mean, if Jesus calls his own death, burial, and resurrection to the day, saying the hour is at hand, This is what's going to happen, and in three days, I'm going to rise again. If that happens, we got to go with Jesus. (laughs) I mean, if that happens, I mean, even his brother James, 
became a follower. I mean, what do you have to do for your brother to be convinced that you're the son of God? I mean, think about that. Come on. And you got, you got his siblings? Jesus can be trusted. And deep in the heart of every one of us is the longing to have someone in your life that you can trust. I mean, through the thick and thin, somebody that's got your back, somebody that is absolutely trustworthy. That's why betrayal cuts so deep. Because all of us have this same felt need. We want to know that there's somebody in my life, a spouse, a parent, a sibling, a friend, somebody that they're just for me, that I can trust them completely. And if you've ever felt the betrayal from someone that you thought was that person, then you can testify to this human reality. We all want to know there's someone we can trust. And the reason we all want to know that is because that's the way God designed us. From the very beginning, man had really one responsibility. God had created this perfect place called Eden, and and he placed them in there. All they had to do was trust God to provide for them and glorify God with their lives. That's all they had to do. God had done all of the work. In, in, In six days, he did everything. It was all for them even before they stepped onto the scene, and that's a picture of, of the way that God provides for us. All we have to do is trust him completely. It's no wonder that the first temptation that was ever given to humanity was a temptation to not trust God. You remember when the serpent came to Eve? What what did he say? He said, did God really say? Right? The first temptation was, is God being completely honest with you? Is God really trustworthy? You see, every attack on your faith is actually an attack on the faithfulness of God. It's an attack on his character. And that's what Satan was doing in the garden, and that's what he's doing in our hearts and lives. He is challenging us against the faithfulness of God. It's funny. I was thinking about this this week. I might have read this somewhere, but it's funny how we can absolutely put confidence in a puzzle company to put all the pieces in the box that we need. And we'll spend hours not questioning their integrity, and yet we can at the same time question God's ability to have a purpose for every piece that he puts in our life. God has a plan. God has a purpose. And the resurrection communicates to us that Jesus can be trusted because our faith has substance. It has substance. It's not useless. It has has the kind of substance that, that walks into the room a week after Easter on a Sunday night and tells doubting Thomas, put your finger in the place where the nails were. Place your hand in my side. Faith that has substance to it. But then Jesus went on after he gave Thomas that experience, and he said, but blessed are those that believe and have not seen. What he was saying is, there is a substance to your faith. Not everyone is going to touch me physically. Not everyone is going to place their hand in my side. But there is a substance to our faith. Jesus told his disciples in John 14, he said, you believe in the Father, believe also in me. Can I tell you today, church, that that our faith is not just in a plan, it's in a person. It's in the person, the resurrected person of Jesus Christ. He can be trusted. It, It was years, years after the resurrection, 
As more followers uh, were coming to faith and the church was growing and there were more people that hadn't known Jesus than there were that had, that John goes back and he writes a letter to the church. In John chapter, or 1 John chapter 1, in verse 1, he begins to try to to, to give some context to what he wants to tell the church. He's trying to paint a picture for them of, of what it is really like for him and the other apostles. And he says these words. He said, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, physically we heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at and our hands have touched, this we proclaim concerning the word of life. See, our faith is not in an idea. Our faith is in an ID. It's in a person. His name is Jesus. And when he came up out of the grave on Easter Sunday, the end game was that you would know you can trust the person of Jesus to be who he said he was, to do what he said he would do, to come through when he said he's going to come through. We serve an on-time God today, amen? And you ought to come away from the resurrection with an assurance that I can trust Jesus. The third thing is found in verse 14 and 15. Still in 1 Corinthians 15, it says, verse 14, and if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. Verse 15 says, more than that, we are then found to be false witnesses about God. For we have testified about God that he raised Christ from the dead. But he did not raise him if, in fact, the dead are not raised. And so, again, if we can just kind of turn these negative statements that, that the apostles would be false witnesses if Christ had not been raised into a positive statement, what he's saying to us is that because of the resurrection, what the apostles preach is true. Number three is simply this, the message is true. The message is true. You can know that today because of the empty tomb. Not only did the apostles teach the resurrection of Jesus, all of them, with the exception of John, were martyred because of this belief in the resurrection. That's one of the most convincing proofs of the authenticity of the story. Of the, I mean, it's one thing to, to try to propagate a lie, but for all of them, to go to their grave, to be tortured, to be martyred, to be killed because of their refusal to deny the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The message is true today. You can have that confidence. You can have confidence in the authority of God's word. How many of you know this is a need today? This is a need in our culture Every, every Christian needs to know that this is the end game of the resurrection. It's an emphatic period on the Gospels that says this is true. Everything that was prophesied about him in the Old Testament, true. Everything that was written in poetry and in muse in the Psalms was true. All the Gospel writers said it was true. Everything that the apostles wrote about the church, it was true because of the resurrection. It's critical that we get that. I was reminded again this week of how real it is that it is more difficult to raise the next generation of Christians today than I believe than it's ever been. Because we've lost truth. 
In our society, we've lost this understanding of absolute truth, the idea that something is true always, everywhere, whether people like it or whether people know it. It's truth. Our culture doesn't live by that standard anymore. Instead, truth has been replaced with subjective experience. So we learn to appreciate each other's truth, but to define our own. That's the world that we're raising our kids in today. I don't know about you, but I've discovered that in a society when there is no right or wrong, it's really hard to teach morals. It's hard to bring correction when there's no absolute right and no absolute wrong, when there's no more truth. The best we can do is is tell everybody to practice tolerance. Just, Just tolerate each other because there is no right and there is no wrong, so we'll just tolerate one another. The problem is we've redefined what tolerance means. In our culture, the idea of tolerance is accepting everybody else's view as equally true. And I just tell you today, that is not what tolerance means. That is not what tolerance means. We should practice tolerance. I mean, when I sit at the restaurant and somebody in the booth next to me slurps their coffee, that is not the way to drink coffee. That's wrong. I will go to my grave telling you that is wrong, but I'll tolerate it. I'll tolerate it. That's tolerance. Tolerance is, is, is dealing with, is putting up with. It's not giving equal platform to. It's not saying the way you do it is equally right. I mean, when I fly on an airplane and the person is crammed into the seat next to me is overflowing into my seat, and then they fall asleep and they put my, their head on my shoulder, that ain't right. That's wrong. This is my space. But I'll tolerate it. That's tolerance. But we've redefined it. We say tolerance is every view is equally true. Parenting the next generation is hard. This week, just this last week, my wife was waiting to pick up our sixth grader at the elementary school, and the window's down, and she overhears a sixth grade girl explaining to a boy that she's bisexual. What do you mean? I'm bisexual. She's explaining this to him. Just this week, we had a little fourth grader in here for our release time program, introducing other kids to her girlfriend and telling them how long they've been dating. Fourth grade. It's confusing. It's confusing. And, and, and they're, they're, being, they're like lambs led to the slaughter. We certainly can't fault our children. But when there's no absolute truth, This is what we get. What concerns me more than that, because my heart's grieved for our culture, but what concerns me more than that is that there are Christian parents who have actually been intimidated and bullied by a militant agenda, and it is a militant agenda. They have been bullied into believing that maybe they're uneducated, that maybe somebody else knows better than me, and Christian parents have grown silent. Can I tell you, the resurrection tells us the message is true. The message is true. 
Mom and dad, the end game of Bible says in John chapter 1 and verse 1, in the beginning was the Word. The Word was God, and the Word was with God in the beginning. That's Jesus. Jesus is the living Word, and his victory over death assures us that his Word can be trusted. And can I just say, Jesus has the authority to tell us what is absolutely true. He said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. He has a right to tell us that. See, any parent is going to love love their child through thick and thin. We're going to love our children. But while we've also redefined what tolerance means, we've redefined love in our culture. Love and acceptance is not the same thing. They're not the same thing. In fact, can I just say that that love without truth is abuse. To know what is right for someone, to know what is harmful for someone, and yet to not share that with them and call it love is negligence. At best, it may be abuse, and you may be sending your children down a long, hard road and potentially a lost eternity. Why? Because we, we don't share the truth in love. We can know today what is true. We can know the same way the women who showed up at the tomb that morning, on Easter Sunday morning, they showed up at the tomb. They learned that the message was true. I read it earlier when we took communion. As they stood there talking to the angels who were sitting upon the stone that had been rolled away, the angel said to them, remember how he told you while he was still with you in Galilee. A couple verses later, it says, then they remembered his words. See, that's what the resurrection does. When we live in light of the resurrection, causes us to remember his words. God wants to speak authoritatively through his word to us, to give us the wisdom that we need, to give us the counsel that we need. We can know that the message is true. The fourth thing is this. The sacrifice is worth it. I take this out of verse 19 in 1 Corinthians 15. It says, if only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are of all people most to be pitied. I mean, Paul's given his life here for the gospel. He's been tortured, he's been imprisoned, he's been beaten and battered and starved and left for dead. And he says, look, if all of this is, is just for this life, man, we have blown it. I mean, we, he goes on later to say what we should have done is let's just eat, drink, and be merry because tomorrow we die. If Jesus hasn't risen, if the grave isn't empty, but because it is, we can know that not only are we not to be envy, uh, pitied, we're enviable. Paul understood that that we have honor in our future, that there's something great and glorious that is laid up for us. See, Jesus never, never promised that it would be easy. In fact, his invitation came with a cross. He said, if you want to be my disciple, if you want to come after me, take up your cross and follow me. Everyone who set on a journey to follow Jesus, whether you've been serving him for 
a few days or a few decades, you know that there's challenges that we face. And you know that at some point, the question rises up, whether you entertain it very long or not, the question rises up on the inside of us. And the question is, is it worth it? I mean, when you make the hard decisions, when you make the sacrifices, and maybe, maybe we don't ask the questions as much the longer we serve the Lord, but I certainly know as a young person, those questions come daily. When it seems like you're the only one that's standing for righteousness, when it seems like you're the only teenager that's towing the line of morality, when it feels like you're the only person that has boundaries in your life that honor God. The question keeps coming back. Is it worth it? Is it worth it? And can I just declare to us today that the end game of Easter is to communicate that whatever sacrifice you've made, great or small, it's worth it. The sacrifice is worth it. If Christ didn't raise from the dead, Paul's right. People should pity us <laughs> that, we would, that we would sacrifice, that we would give, that we would serve, that we would be here on our weekend studying this text and, and trying to learn and, and trying to receive from a God who stayed in the grave. But because of the resurrection, Paul went on to write another letter to the Corinthians. And in 2 Corinthians 4 and 17, here was his perspective. He said, for our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. I don't know if you've read the biography of the Apostle Paul in the New Testament, but what he calls light and momentary troubles include being stoned to death. What he calls light and momentary include being shipwrecked, persecuted, the scourging that Jesus received, the 39 lashes on his back, Paul received that too, five different times. But in light of the resurrection, he said, this is light. This is momentary. This will heal, or maybe it won't. But they can only kill my body. They can't touch my soul. Because there's resurrection. And so the sacrifice is worth it. The sacrifice is worth it. That's why when Paul gets to the end of chapter 15, which we're reading today and what has really often been called the resurrection chapter, he understands that, that living for Jesus is worth it, that it's, not, that it's not in vain. So he ends that chapter with verse 58 in these words, therefore... In other words, because of everything that I've just said about the resurrection of the dead and the hope we have in Christ, therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. It's not in vain. Can I say that to somebody today? It's not in vain. You might have been questioning, is it worth it? I just, I just don't know. Maybe, maybe, you know, I tried this thing. It's hard. Well, guess what? It is hard. I'm not here to tell you it's not hard. I'm not here to tell you you're not doing it right. I'm here to tell you it's a cross. Put your back into it. The sacrifice is worth it. It's not in vain. 
Christ is risen. That means your life in Christ is hidden. And there is an eternal reward laid up for you. The last thing that the, the resurrection communicates to me out of this text, fifthly and finally, death is not the end. Paul writes in verse 17 and 18, and if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. And then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. So one more time, Paul says here, here's the negative connotation that, that if there's no resurrection, then those who died believing just died. They're lost. They're gone. It's over. End of story. Is there a bigger question than that that, we, that could be answered? I mean, come on. What happens when I die? I mean, that is the ultimate question. That's what people want to know. I mean, when it's all been said and done, what happens? That's the question that Easter answers. Verse 20, again, Paul says, but Christ has indeed been raised from the dead. He is the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. In other words, just like, just like the harvest, the first fruits is a sign that there's more to come. We all get excited in the springtime when we start to see the first flowers bud on the trees, when the first leaves start to, tar- start to sprout and grow. Why? Because we know it's a sign of things to come. The weather's about to get nice. The grass is going to start to grow again. It, the flowers are going to grow. Why? Because it's the first fruits. And the Bible says Jesus is just that. When we look at Jesus, we know I'm coming up out of this grave too. Because Jesus rose, I'll rise. Because Jesus lives, I'll live. And that's what Paul was trying to communicate to the church and to us. Because of the resurrection, death is not the end. It's not the end. I want to close today by just reading one more passage of scripture to you. Paul was explaining this powerful truth to the Thessalonian church in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. He says, brothers and sisters, verse 13, we do not want you to be uninformed about those who sleep in death so that you do not grieve like the rest of mankind who have no hope. Paul's not saying we don't grieve. He's saying our grief's not like everybody else's because the tomb is empty, because of the resurrection, because this changes everything. He says, for you, for we believe that Jesus died and rose again. That's the key to our confidence. So we also believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. According to the Lord's word, we tell you that we who are still alive and are left until the coming of the Lord will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. That was their concern. These people were serving Jesus and waiting for the rapture, and they just thought, oh, we can't wait for Jesus to come. But then one of the church members died. And all of a sudden they said, wait a minute. Jesus didn't come. What about them? Did they miss it because we thought Jesus was coming? And then somebody else died. And Paul's out preaching the gospel, and they're, they're sending him letters. They're going, Paul, well, you got to clarify. I mean, we can't wait for Jesus to come back, and we have full anticipation that it's going to happen in our lifetime. But what about the people that died? 
And Paul says, you're not going to get there before them. Don't worry. Here's what you need to know. The Lord himself, verse 16, will come down from heaven with a loud command, command, with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet call of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. After that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. This is gonna, he said, this is going to be a reunion. They're, they're, don't, don't take long walks through cemeteries. They're coming up first. He said, he said, the dead in Christ will rise and then those of us who are alive and remain will be caught up to meet them in the air. And he said, there's going to be a reunion in the sky. We will be with the Lord. And you can almost hear the collective sigh of the church. Because then Paul follows that statement saying in verse 18, therefore, encourage one another with these words. Encourage one another with this reality that because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, we can know death is not the end. Because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, we can know that no matter what it has cost you to walk this walk of faith, the sacrifice is worth it. Because the tomb is empty, we can know today that the message of the gospel is true. You can stake your life on it. You can build your house on it. God's word is true today. That's the end game of Easter, that we can have absolute confidence that the farther our world walks away from the moorings of God's truth, we can stand. Regardless of consequences, we can stand on the authority of God's word. We can know today that Jesus can be trusted. He can be trusted. You can trust him today. Why? Because he said, I'm going to die, and in three days I'm going to rise, and then he did it. Who else can say that? And because of the resurrection, the end game of Easter tells us today that we can be forgiven. The figure of a Savior on a cross, while it says you're worth it, The symbol of an empty tomb says, you're worthy. It's God's way of saying, I received the sacrifice. And I want to challenge you today, church. Easter's behind us, but we never get past living in light of an empty tomb. I want to challenge you today to stake your life on these promises that are ours because of Jesus' victory over death. And if you're here today and you don't have a relationship with God, these truths are for you, purchased with the highest price of God's son's own life and ratified through his victory over death. These are for you today. I want to pray for all of us. I want to ask you if you would to just bow your heads with me all over this room. Maybe just one of these five things stood out to you today. Maybe there's just one promise that you needed to grab a hold of. I don't know where you're at, what you're going through or what you needed to hear today, but I just wanna invite you where you're sitting right now by faith to just reach out by faith and grab a hold of the end game 
of Easter. Grab a hold of what it really means to live on the other side of Resurrection Sunday. To live every day of your life knowing God accepts Jesus' sacrifice for my sin. I'm forgiven. You can be forgiven today. The Bible says if you repent of your sin, that God is faithful and he's just and he'll forgive you of your sin. Right now, you can be forgiven because we're on the other side of Easter. Maybe some of you today, you just need to be reminded, I can trust Jesus. My faith is not built on an idea. It's built on an ID. It's a man. It's a person. It's God in the flesh. I can trust him with my life. Trust him today. Maybe you're here today and and you've struggled to, to just live according to the word of God. Maybe it's been doubt in your own heart. Maybe it's been pressures from outside that have just bombarded you with skepticism and militant opposition against the truth of God's word has has put you on your heels. And today, you need to be reminded of the authority of God's word. Let it lead and guide your life. His word is a lamp to your feet. It's a light to your path. The message is true. The empty tomb declares it. Believe today. Maybe today you're hearing The Holy Spirit needs to remind you right now, the sacrifice is worth it. It's worth it. I'm so grateful to have Lindsay Splain in this service this morning. Yesterday, she graduated from New Life for Girls. Lindsay, we're proud of you. So proud of you. Her and the other ladies at that graduation yesterday, they... They testified about the journey they've been on for over a year. Sacrifice is worth it. Some of you, maybe you need to be reminded of that today. You're having yourself a little pity party. I'm the only one serving Jesus. No, it's worth it. There's no crown without a cross. There's no victory without vigilance. It's worth it. Maybe some of you today, you need to be reminded Death is not the end. It's not the end. Victory, eternal life is our reward. I would ask you to stand with me all over.